we'd like to do is just have a conversation. Part of the reason why we do this, actually, for those of you who are maybe new to Spark, is part of um, the culture of what it is that we are trying to create in our community uh, is not just information or preaching or speaking that goes in one direction, um, but a kind of communal experience where there's this back and forth and this question and answer and probing, um, and in some ways almost an, an interrogation of the ideas or the concepts or the theologies or the philosophies that emerge. Um, Because truth is far too important and understanding is far too important to just sit passively and absorb what somebody is saying. And that goes for Danielle or I or any of the pastors or preachers at Spark. Um, We also want to cultivate a culture uh, in which you're engaging and questioning and wrestling with. That's part of what it means to be Israel. So we hope that you feel fully comfortable to ask any questions. So here's what we've got, at least logistically. Um, There are two microphones there, um, and I would encourage you, as I ask my first question, to just kind of stage yourself so we can keep the flow of the conversation going. You're welcome to just come up to the microphone at any particular time or raise your hand at any particular time. Uh, We are recording this for the podcast, for the Sparks um, podcast, so for the distant sparkers who are unable to make it here today, they could uh, listen in on the conversation. So please uh, use the microphones. I would ask kindly if you would do so. Um, and then we'll just go for a few moments um, until we're out of questions, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, and then we had a couple come in uh, oh, via text as well. Again, any uh, avenue of questions that is comfortable for you. Sound good? Everybody good? So my first question actually is, I wanted to hear, you've written a lot about church history and specifically church, uh, American church history and the developments of the church from um, fundamentalism and great awakenings and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious if you have pulled or observed any threads of gratitude throughout that season of church history and what, what role or what influence has gratitude or thankfulness played throughout church history that might help um, frame our current position? I think that's a really good question. And um, I think one of the things that was so surprising to me when I was working on the, the project was that in Latin and Greek, uh, the word gratia in Latin and then charis in Greek, uh, those are words that we translate as grace and thanksgiving into English. Uh, but we also translate them into grace, thanksgiving, gratitude, favor. Uh, in other words, they carry like this multiplicity of meanings. And yeah. it never really occurred to me until I was writing a book called Grateful that gratitude and grace were the same root word. Yeah. Now, this goes to the answer to your question, is that one of the things I loved when I was studying church history was looking at the history of the experience of Christian people or people when they encounter God. And so I was always interested in mystical movements and spiritual awakenings and those moments of surprise when all of a sudden a person saw everything in an entirely new way. And so the Protestant Reformation or the movement of St. Francis of Assisi or the Wesleyan movement in the 18th century. So all those movements of awakenings, renewals, that's the stuff that I've always loved. When I was working on Grateful and realized there was a connection between the word gratitude and grace, I immediately went back to church history and I realized that every single time in church history there's a spiritual awakening, 
um, what's at the center is a rediscovery of grace. And grace not in a hierarchical way or a way mediated through an institution, but an immediate powerful experience of grace that comes to individual people or communities where all of a sudden the world is transformed um, by a sense of the presence of God and the gifts that God gives and the abundance that surrounds us. And so I don't write about that a whole lot in the new book. Um, I think that that's going to be the next book, Mm. actually. So I think you asked the question that's the next book question. It reminds me, actually, when you were saying that, of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the good grace, the good thanksgiving. Well-graced or good thanksgiving. It's so funny to have it doubled like that. You know, it's it's a beautiful term. Um, We did have one question that uh, is a clarifying question come in. Um, Why would Zacchaeus feel like he would owe Jesus something if he's the one hosting Jesus for dinner? I get it if uh, if Jesus is hosting him. But it almost seems like Jesus uh, put himself below Zacchaeus. So that's the question that came in. A clarification on kind of the... Oh, the dinner invitation. The dinner invitation. Yeah, well, because Zacchaeus was used to living in a world where the higher status person would invite the lower status person. And so when Jesus invites Zacchaeus to dinner, Zacchaeus automatically thinks in the terms of the ancient Roman Empire. He thinks, oh my gosh okay, Jesus must be higher status than me, even though it just was a surprise to him, Mm -hmm. this whole moment. And so he puts himself in a client relationship to Jesus Mm -hmm. as his patron all of a sudden. And because of that relationship, then Zacchaeus turns around, he does what any client would do, Mm -hmm. and that is, I'll give you all of this stuff. And Jesus, it's not entirely clear in the text, but Jesus just says, Salvation has come to this house today. And it doesn't mean that salvation has come because Zacchaeus has put himself in a client relationship to Jesus, but that, that Zacchaeus has allowed the world to be turned upside down. Mm-hmm. And it's that moment where Zacchaeus can finally be free of the old vision. And he doesn't get it quite right when Jesus invites him to a new place, but I, I have every confidence that Zacchaeus is going to get it right, right when right. they sit down and talk about it over the dinner table. Right. And, um, and uh, it's, Jesus is opening the door for a, to, to a new world for Zacchaeus. Yeah. Right. And I do think that Zacchaeus is also saying, in a very real sense, um, because he goes and he says, oh, I'm going to give everybody back everything I've stolen and then fourfold to these people over here. And um, in a sense, he's saying, I'm going to give up my job because there's nobody that could be a tax collector and who could do that because you, you just couldn't. You wouldn't be able to collect the taxes. He, mm-hmm. he was bankrupting himself. And so Zacchaeus is giving back to Jesus and he's giving up his job. So he's getting out of the system and he's going to free himself. So it's a pretty powerful passage, actually. It, it makes me feel... Uh, my lamentation sometimes with, with a lot of these Bible passages, and for anybody who's been in Spark for any period of time, you know that this is a little bit of the heartbeat for, for us, is that we read some of these stories and we think, we, <laughs> we think nice, pithy, bumper sticker takeaways right. without seeing the radical sociopolitical subversion right. that these stories are. Um, and so that's what I so appreciated, is to think deeper, more contextual, more historical it just explodes these stories into something that this early movement of Jesus was doing 
that was far beyond just personal piety or being nicer or being a better person. It was, it was a radical kind of in-your-face right. movement. And grace, so grace and gratitude and thankfulness is, in, at least in this iteration, one side of the coin, the other side being subversion and upending and, you know, in your face to Caesar. Yes. And the idea that with, with gratitude, one of the things that we've done in the United States is we've often translated it into an individual practice. Mm. And so, um, you know, you might keep a gratitude journal or you might send thank you notes or you might yourself be grateful but we've lost the capacity to think about it as a communal practice. And that's really sad because, in a sense, the most distinctive of all American holidays is Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's the one that we literally invented um, out of whole cloth. You know, we even got, in a sense, we got it right when we had the original icon of Thanksgiving being people from diverse cultures sitting at a table together. Now, of course, it never happened that way. But it shows that we that there was something in uh, the American psyche that knew Thanksgiving was really important as a communal thing to do together, and that we at least didn't imagine it initially hierarchically. Mm. We imagined it in this romanticized, mythological way of people around a table sharing. Mm-hmm. And it would be really nice if we could take the myth and make it real. Jordan, please. Hey. Uh, so I just kind of want to go back to Zacchaeus, and I want to spend too much time on it, but I don't get why he would accept, like, I hear your story that he's, like, in that Roman mindset, and so he says, oh, the appropriate thing to do. But he's a powerful guy. Yes. He's not hoodwinked that easily. Why would he do it if he didn't have, like, a personal reckoning or something experience? Yeah. Or, well, or maybe, like, I keep picturing in my head, here's Jesus leading this huge crowd. He can see Jesus' social power. Like, is that, <laughs> is that his in, back in with his community? Is that, like, he's got to have some motive. That's a really great question. I hadn't really thought about the crowd being one of the ways that Zacchaeus is wanting to re-ingratiate himself mm-hmm. uh, into his community. Um, in the book, I talk about how Zacchaeus, there's probably a tension in Zacchaeus, because he is a Jew, And one of the things, of course, that um, binds the Jewish community together is the idea of Sabbath and Jubilee and life in a debt-free world. And all of the festivals of Judaism were festivals of gratefulness, thanksgiving, that reminded people, reminded the Jews that God was the giver of all gifts, that they lived in a community of abundance, and that once every seven days, once every seven years, and then once every 49 years, they'd have these special ritual acts to remind them of God being the giver and God being the one who made all the abundance and that they were, in turn, grateful, not in a hierarchical kind of way, but in a way that was about creating a different kind of community. It was about envisioning God's dream in the in the land of milk and honey. And so I think that Zacchaeus, he's, he is a Jew. He, he has a memory of that. And even though he's living in this oppressive system, he, he's got something else going on too. And I think Jesus gives him an out. And when, when the door is open, Zacchaeus climbs, climbs down that tree. 
So, so I do think it's the memory of, of being God's own that does I that. Have, I have one other question. Yeah, it's a great question. That, but I like your solution, too, <laughs> is that he wants to get back with his people, which is another way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you talk about God being the giver of all gifts and then it's not hierarchical, right. it confuses me because God has ah. all this stuff. <laughs> like, what could be more fundamentally hierarchical? Oh, yeah, that's a whole different book that I wrote before. <laughs> well, one of the, the pictures I, I did not show in this uh, shorter version of a three-day kind of uh, educational event that I take groups through is um, I have a, a painting that I carry around on my computer, and it's a picture of God, and it's from 1515. And uh, God is, it's an Italian painting, God is white, God is male, God is sitting in clouds, Um, God is marked as special because God has a halo on, and um, I call that the, the vision of God that haunts Western imagination. Because every time I talk to somebody who's an atheist and I ask them what God they no longer believe in, they describe the God in that photo, that, that painting. And what's kind of equally fascinating about that painting is then I'll turn around and I'll tell my clergy friends, I say, you know, every time I talk to an atheist and I say, what kind of God do you believe in? They always describe the God in this painting. And then my clergy friends will say, well, I don't believe in that God either. And so what, what you just uh, sort of pointed to was a problem that we all have in our theological imaginations is that God is up there outside of us is male is white and is special. Now, you might not believe all those things, but that's the God that, because it was such a dominant vision of God that shaped Western theology, that's our default God. But what if that's not where God is? Um, As a matter of fact, there's all kinds of language uh, that certainly indicates that God is with us, including the whole doctrine of the incarnation. And the whole purpose of Jesus coming was to open the possibility that God is with us. And then even with the book of Acts, you get God sending the Holy Spirit to make sure we don't forget that. And that God's presence is everywhere and in all places and all things. And so um, what we keep doing is we keep kind of... Pu- Putting God, we keep trying to put theology and God in this shape structure as if God is up here and then everybody else is down here. That's called the great chain of being and was the way that people constructed the universe in the Middle Ages. And, of course, what we have been through in the last five, 500 to 700 years is realizing that that structure of the universe isn't, isn't re- reality. Um, the universe is structured differently. And now I think we're struggling to find new language to talk about the presence of God that is all around us. That's your book, Grounded. That's the book, Grounded, and, yeah. And so. if you are interested, uh, Diana shared wonderfully on that about a year ago, I guess, or a, a little over a year ago. That's also yeah. on, on Spark's site. But that's a great yeah. question because, see, we keep doing that, thinking that God is up there sending us gifts. But what if all the gifts are here? What if we're just completely surrounded by gifts and that God is emanating gifts constantly 
in a circle of grace that we move in like the sea, but we're still looking up and we miss all this. It's a really, it's a really compelling vision. Yeah. It reminds me of the garden, right? I mean, yes. That, mm-hmm. we're, that we're in the midst dwelling with God in the garden and all that we need is present there. It's not yep. up, right? We're not waiting for it to come. It's, it's yeah. right there. And they too didn't always find what was right in front of them. <laughs> I, I just had a thought on the Zacchaeus system. There's like, or Zacchaeus story. There's two systems going on, right? We have present there the Roman system, but we also have present the Jewish hierarchical system that's also sort of uh, functioning within its Roman world, right. and where there are either um, you know rejections. By the Jewish people, they are either rejecting the Roman system entirely and running out to the desert like the Essenes, or there's maybe some compromise and trying to find a way through it. So Zacchaeus isn't maybe only whose name is Zacchaeus, which means innocent one in Hebrew. He's maybe not only also just operating. There's a complexity. There's lots of cultural systems going on. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus um, says salvation has come to your house, for this one too is a son of Abraham. And so even if Zacchaeus has he's still a Jewish male, right, but has compromised or become complicit with the empire and is handling money with the image of Caesar on it, declaring right. that Caesar is God, then he has also been ostracized, not just because he's a tax collector, but also by his Jewish community. Right. And so Jesus steps into that and he says, you still belong here, right? Because the response is he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Right. And so he, there's... Zacchaeus is still on the outside, and then Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost, which is a direct quote from Ezekiel 34, which is a condemnation of the leaders of God's people who have muddied the waters and trampled the grass so people can't drink. So in all the complicitness, and I think there's just a, there's the Roman system, and then there's still the subculture system of the Jewish people that are there that are still operating by their own laws of cleanliness and what's right, and all of the various... Um, votes on that but the message of having everybody at the table right right is still pervasive throughout all of the teachings of jesus particularly just a few chapters before in luke 15 and the parable you showed of luke 14 that all of this is about this radical welcome and getting everybody back to the table right rather than um sitting still outside the building wanting to come in and that really uh fits with the question about the presence of god and where the gifts are exactly and in in a very real way at the end of that parable jesus or at the end of the zacchaeus story what jesus is saying is that the gifts are here for everyone yes and they're 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 all around and that no one is excluded from those gifts Mm -hmm. and it's the gifts are free and that we get to the idea of free grace and there's no more radical idea at the, the heart of, of what becomes Christianity than the idea that grace is really free. And the gifts are available all the time to everyone without cost. Which is so beautiful also in that Zacchaeus story. Yeah. Because he says, okay, if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Which is an echo from Second Samuel 12 with Daniel and Nathan. And Daniel says, like, this guy's terrible, and like, he should pay back four times, and this, that man is you, right? But so Zacchaeus <laughs> takes that, that still language within his Jewish community, and Jesus is like, you know, I'm still coming to your house. The salvation is right. here. You don't, this payment system, exactly as you've talked about, like the debts and the debtors, it's really beautiful. So 
Just a note that there might be another cultural system involved too. There was a wonderful question during the break. Um, the the passage on debts from the Lord's Prayer in Luke it's translated as sins or trespasses, and in Matthew it's translated as debts, and that's because there is a conflict. Um, in how we forget that Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, he didn't speak Greek. And so Jesus said this thing, this, this prayer in Aramaic, and then Luke and Matthew have to translate it into Greek. And Luke takes one word, sins or trespasses, and Matthew takes this other word and translates what Jesus says into debts. And um, there's every reason to believe that the Matthew translation is better. Um, so if any of you were raised Presbyterian and prayed the Lord's <laughs> prayer with debts, congratulations, you got it right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's it, the, the, the translation of debts is just much closer to what the Aramaic seems to, to mean. So I was in uh, Canada and I was preaching at this church that was in a university town and there were probably about 20 students who came from the university and heard this sermon and it was on the, the Matthew passage. Of, of the Lord's Prayer using the word debt. And so I got to this point in the sermon, I got very excited, and I just, I said, and Jesus' entire vision is of a debt-free world. And the students, I could see the look on the students' faces, you know? And I thought, oh my gosh. And um, so, so afterwards, I'm standing at the door in the very traditional church. People come by and greet the pastor. And there were a number of older people in front of the, in front of, of the students wanted to talk to me. So I dispatched the older people really quickly. And the students came up to me and they said, Jesus really said that? And I said, yeah, I wasn't kidding you in the sermon. That's the vision of the Lord's Prayer, life in a world of no debts. And they said, that's what we want. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I've heard that. Um, <laughs> and we had this great talk about um, their social vision of a debt-free world. And at the, in the middle of the conversation, one of the students got so excited, and he said to me, you mean Jesus is like Bernie Sanders? <laughs> And I said, well, yeah, actually, they were both Jews. <laughs> They're probably both reading the same text. So, yeah, that's probably right. And so, uh, but if we think about it, it's an amazing, it's an amazing vision. Well, and you, people you always the, freak out. Americans always freak you out. You mentioned the hierarchical system. Yeah. Debt was a form of slavery. Debt, debt was a form of, you, you right. know, you are owned or a portion of who you are is owned by somebody else. So Right. And just, peace. and in the United States, we get it all messed up because of capitalism. And we, and somebody will always say to me, well, does that mean I should, that my mortgage is sinful, right, right. you know? And it's like, no, go deeper with me here. And, uh, and it, it was part of a social structure. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, it, it's really important for us to understand that it was, not just about it, like buying your house, but it really truly was that your soul and everything you were was given over to this system where you could never get out right. from underneath the control of another human being. Yeah, which, which in many ways is not too dissimilar to what 
is happening in our modern day. Well, so, exactly I mean, this, right. is, this is huge. We've had three people write in with a very practical kind of question. I think the first one that came in said, thank you for your message. The Bible also talks about giving thanks. Could you please explain how we express the differences with the political gratitude and the gratitude that we are to offer to God? Uh, for example, God saved me from eternal uh, condemnation. I, ho- I owe God my life. Um, and then some other people mentioned out uh, mentioned uh, about being sinners saved by grace, and it's a, a much more practical, everyday, uh, one person mentioned, at the micro level. If your message is about seeing it as a larger political structure, what do we do about this micro level, personal, practical, personal salvation gratitude? Well, thank you. That's a good question. One of the, the surprises, another surprise for me actually, was um, when I read all the books about gratitude in preparation for writing my own book, I kept thinking, what am I going to write? Because there are a lot of very good books about gratitude um, that are available. And some of them are more secular, and then a lot of them are written from very distinctly Christian perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are good books. And I kept thinking to myself, what in the world do I have to add to this discussion? And um, the structure of the book that eventually came from my heart is that gratitude is more complex than what we know. And I gave you one piece of it. In a sense, I gave you sort of the bang-up end-of-the-book piece um, because it actually starts with uh, a struggle that I had about writing thank-you notes. And so I start with this very simple, sort of painful thing uh, where I could never write thank you notes for presents. And um, I tell the story about how when I was 14 years old, I opened up this Christmas present on you know, Christmas morning, and my mother had wrapped up a copy of Miss Manners and put a bookmark in it to the section where about thank you notes because I was it's the most passive aggressive Christmas present I ever got. Very, very subtle. Very, very <laughs> subtle. And, and, and so I start in this, you know, sort of deeply personal place of struggle. And the first chapter is actually called confessions of an ingrate. And, um, what flows from that is that, uh, gratitude is a feeling and it's an action. And so it is, Gratitude on a personal level is that sense of (gasps) relief and wonder and surprise and all those things we feel when we've gotten a gift. And um, I think that relates to the question here about God and grace. You know, is that when you encounter Jesus, when you um, have a life that is transformed by faith, is that that there's this deeply personal, emotional thing that happens. And um, you live in that, and it changes you mm-hmm. uh, because those feelings are very powerful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and uh, all the books about gratitude say the same thing, and that gratitude as an emotion is so powerful that it actually has healing capabilities. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a person who has a heart attack and has a strong disposition of gratitude and practices gratefulness is more likely to recover well from a major medical yeah incident. Um, so, so that personal experience and those personal practices of gratitude are amazing, mm-hmm. whether from a more secular perspective or a distinctly Christian one. So um, I talk about, about gratitude as a feeling, but then gratitude is also something we do. And so 
it is about thank you notes or returning favors and having our lives knit with other people in ways that are kind and um, about the exchange of gifts. And that's a beautiful thing because yeah. it helps to make community, those kinds of ties. Um, but so, so that, that's the kind of the first structure through the book is feelings yeah. and action. But then there's a further structure where I talk about how gratitude is about us as individuals. So it's a, it takes place on a me level. Um, so I might feel grateful and I might learn to develop an ethical practice of saying thank you to my grandmother, but it also happens on a we level. And, um, the we level is often in that, that one's a little harder to get to in some ways. Um, but it also happens as a feeling and as an ethic. And so, um, Personal gratitude, feeling, and action, and then communal gratitude, uh, feeling, and action. And just as a quick example of communal feelings of gratitude would include things like um, uh, the Cubs winning the World Series. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, they actually say this, it was 7 million people, poured out into the streets of Chicago. And that was about gratitude. It was like, oh my gosh, the curse is broken. The Cubs have won. Oh, this is nothing like this has ever happened before. You know, and, and we have those moments of communal gratitude that are so extraordinary. And the church, we try to embody that with Eucharist. Um, but then there's the other piece becomes what does a corporate practice of gratitude or communal practice of gratitude, gratitude of ethic, an ethical vision of gratitude, look like when we all do it together. And that's where the pol- political piece fits. So basically, the book is like this. It's four quadrants. Personal and public, feelings and actions. And there are different ways that gratitude plugs in each one of those places. And what happens is we can create a very fulsome vision of gratitude in our lives by employing all four of those and so that's what the book winds up being. So I shared the, the, the sort of the punchiest piece with you, which is the last piece. But there's a lot there. And um, all that stuff can be very hard, too. We've had two questions come in that I think are very related. So I'll read both of them um, at the same time. There's actually more that, that, that are coming in. You are welcome to share from the microphone, if you'd like. Um, just, <laughs> so, a, just a reminder. They don't seem so introverted, but... Oh, we're a pretty introverted <laughs> church, trust me. <laughs> um, so I, I think these two are related if I'm reading them correctly. So I, please forgive me if I'm missing something. You mentioned that periods of spiritual awakening in the church are often marked by gratitude and feelings, yes. in feeling and practice. For those of us longing for a spiritual awakening in the church right now, do you see any evidence of this today? So that's question number one. And then the other question that I think is related is, can you share some recent examples of practicing gratitude in a way that carries such political weight, or can you share some dreams of what you think this could look like in our current context? So one of them is, do you see evidence of the church practicing gratitude towards a spiritual awakening? And the second question is, what would you dream about would look like uh, in our current context that particular exercise? Those are great. Um, One... Yes, I actually do see 
incidents of this occurring that I think there is a spiritual awakening going on. Um, and um, it can sometimes be difficult to see this in the church because we have too often structured churches in hierarchical ways and made gratitude a quid pro quo, no. even within church. I don't know about you all, but I have heard people say things like, oh, God died for my sins, so I have to do X, Y, Z. Mm. We even turn salvation into mm. a quid pro quo. Wow. Yeah. And the truth of it is, is, is that no, it's not. Is that, that God's love towards us is a free gift for which we did absolutely nothing. And we, and we, and we don't have to do anything in return. It's just that when that gift comes and we sense that gift, our response is, <gasps> and our lives are turned inside out because our hearts are rearranged. Mm-hmm. And so, so what has happened in all different forms of the church is that we have turned grace into quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. And that is why it sometimes is hard to see because even the churches aren't proclaiming it very well. However... There are places where I think this is happening, and part of it is people's discontent with the church, Hmm. is that I actually look at how angry some people are at the church as a gift, Hmm. because people are saying there's something wrong with the messages that are being preached. And I just can't go along with that. And I've got to find a different place to live my life. And so the discontent and the searching and the, 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 the reaching for different forms of community, I really see as part of the awakening. Mm-hmm. And um, there are all sorts of extraordinary things going on around people talking about and forming new communities of compassion. Um, Santa Barbara, California, great example. Um, Those poor people down there, you know, they had a miserable, horrible December and January. And after the first thing, after the fires, um, I I lived there for several years, so I pay attention to what goes on in Santa Barbara, and I still have lots of friends there. And um, the town council, or the city council... And religious leaders got together after the fire, and the fires happened right before Christmas, and they decided that they were going to use the 12 days of Christmas as 12 days of gratitude in the city of Santa Barbara. And so they began unrolling these 12 days of gratitude, where they literally thanked all these different people in town. They were emphasizing local community. They were, there were celebrations and services of Thanksgiving and gratitude all over the town. And so they, they were like eight days into the 12 days of gratitude, and then the mudslides happened. Hmm. And what was so tremendous about that from everyone that I, I've heard of from Santa Barbara, it was one, they were, in a sense, they were already bound together in this practice of gratitude. And then the second disaster hit, and they felt closer than they had before. And so they had more capacity to deal with a second disaster. And I look at something like that, and I actually think about that as an awakening. It's not really a church awakening, 
but it's certainly a spiritual awakening where a city realized that it truly was a community, that it was bound together by gifts and thanks, and that even two disasters could not take away the heart of a community. And so you look at something like that, and that really says that there is, I think, a powerful spirit at work in the United States right now. Um, and it's so hard to, it's, it's easy to ignore it because there's so much noise of the other. But I think we have to keep looking for things like that. So I, I think I'd like to push on that a little bit because I, I, I can hear some of my uh, wonderful friends here um, feel as if the disruption that's happening within the church, specifically within a, a particular brand of evangelicalism, um, is not an awakening. It's the, it's the, it's the exact opposite. It's a it's, I cannot believe these people who claim to follow Jesus, right. who claim to love the Bible, who claim uh, to be all about you know, the commandments, etc., are acting and behaving in this particular way in, this, in our current sociopolitical um, circumstance. And I think, I, I guess, part of my push or my, my inquiry uh -huh. further is, I'm really intrigued that you see this as a spiritual awakening or at least aspects of it in these little pockets because for many of us, I, I think there is this... Um, PTSD that we're experiencing. Yes. I mean, th these I agree are with you. these are this is a group of people that I've associated with. These are a group of people that are my home. Like I, I grew up from uh, as a part of uh, that kind of faith expression, mm -hmm. um, and yet this is how they are acting and how they're behaving. And I just don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. And how could that how could that be an awakening? So I'd, I'd be kind of curious your response to because yeah. so, I, I can hear those voices uh, in the conversations that we've had here about that several years ago. Uh, in a very sort of odd thing, a beautiful and odd thing happened to me, and that it was I got invited to lunch um, by Rowan Williams, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I'm an Episcopalian, and so this is a big deal. You get invited to lunch by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and so I, I literally went to Lambeth Palace and sat in the office of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and we talked about spiritual awakening. And so I said to him, um, Archbishop, you know, people are always asking me where I see spiritual awakening. And, you know, the truth of it is, and you can say these things sometimes when you're, you know, sitting somewhere with a person like this. I said, the truth of it is, is I don't see it very often in the church. I see it in other places. And so here's the, here's his, this wise, amazing person who's in charge of the worldwide Anglican communion, 23 million Christians. And he said, why would you look for it in the church? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And see, that's the thing. Is that spiritual awakenings historically never start in the church. That's beautiful. They st and, and, and when he said that to me, I literally almost fell through my chair because, I mean, my PhD is in church history and I should have known better. Um, <laughs> And so is his, actually. And, uh, <laughs> and so he was collegially reminding me of something I should know. Uh, but he said, you know, he said, awakenings always start on the fringes. Mm -hmm. So if you see churches acting stupid and doing the exact wrong thing and going in the completely opposite direction that they should be, it's probably a sign that there is an awakening on the fringes. Hmm. Wow. 
So, and, and what, what will happen from there, I have no idea. Sometimes the fringes move in and may, are, are able to transform what hap, what's happening in the center. But then sometimes the center gets so powerful that it tries to execute everybody on the fringes. Yeah. That's really amazing. And so there's different possibilities of what can happen here. But I think we're, <laughs> in, we're in that awakening now. That's encouraging. We... Uh, few weeks, few months ago, preached a message called On the Edge of the Inside. And that as a church, that's part of our continued um, hope is that we'll be able to be on the edge of the inside. So just sort of on the fringe. And it was because of something that lady said to me. She said, she, I said, well, Spark is sort of fringy. We keep grabbing these things. And we started talking about that's where people grab hold of Jesus, right? That's is right. on the fringe, on the edge. And so we started feeling this, this great hope. But I think that this is where we need your work, and we're so deeply grateful. The hard part is because we keep also getting pushed off the island. Right. Right? There's a whole bunch of people from within that'll say, no, you're not fringy. You're actually not with us anymore. Yeah. And, and that can be such a wrestling. And, and I've been wrestling a lot with that. And my, my friend, who's the rabbi emeritus here, in the reform movement in Judaism, they've lived through a lot of reformation themselves more recently mm -hmm. here in the United States. And so we were talking, he said, Daniel, why are you upset that people don't like you? <laughs> it's like, well, just kind of upsetting sometimes. And he said, ISIS doesn't like you either. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're right. Like, ISIS doesn't like me either, right? I, I mean, yeah. at some point, not, he wasn't trying to make a comparison, but he's had more experience living where, because he's reform, um, living where he kept, has gotten pushed out. Right. Um, and it was so helpful to hear. So that, that's a little bit of my constant question and need for your insight you've been doing this for a long time in terms of also getting pushed out i've watched other people <laughs> vote you off the island right i have been voted off of so many islands right. i'm surprised i'm not drowned <laughs> right. <laughs> right. but that prophetic voice that you have for the church i think that's where i'm still looking for for hope that where we are right now um is a place of disruption but that um even though those of us who've maybe studied the Reformation, we thought it happened a long time ago, but maybe right. it's happening again now. And I think that's my question is those places where you continue to see hope for, yeah. for um, a spiritual awakening within the whole of the church. I don't want to leave anybody behind either if they're willing to come. Uh, and and I, I dream of a church that is more faithful and more beautiful and more just and more a table than an institution and... One that does not sell its soul to the vertical hierarchy and the feeding of this hideous gap that we have between the rich and the poor and environmental destruction and all that's going on along with it. But I can't be responsible for that one way or the other. You know, all that I think any of us can do is to live as powerfully as we can um, with God and on behalf of God and, and trying to embody, and no, not trying, because you either try or you do, as Yoda said. And so, so I want to just do. Uh, at embodying the, the compassion of God um, wherever we are. And I think at this moment that pushes a lot of us to the fringes. Um, but as you rightly say... <laughs> I've actually been kicked off of an incredible amount of islands. 
But what I've learned through the whole process is I've learned how to float on the sea of the spirit. And so what I, I dream of for those of us who feel like we've been exiled, that we're living that life of exile or that we've been kicked off the island or whatever it is, is that we can um, be buoyant in faith. And um, I think that that's what my current work is really about, is about that buoyancy, looking for the spiritual practices that keep us afloat and a vision of God that is the, the raft, as it were, in the rough seas of our time. And so um, sometimes Christians live in, live in ages where you don't have to ask these kinds of questions or be aware of these realities. And then sometimes Christians historically, we just get this draw of the deck. You know, this is just the, the historical moment. And um, I can wish I lived in the n- another time, the 19th century or the 1950s or whatever, when it was all easier and the churches were bigger and maybe more faithful. Um, but that's not what I got. I got now. And this is our life. So this is what we get to do. I, I don't think you realize what a gift, what you just said, all of that is to us. I mean, for for our friends, this community, people that I know that are listening to this that are distant sparkers, feeling very much in that space of uncertainty and confusion, anger, uh, frustration Mm -hmm. on the edges, on the fringes, and just you articulating that there is, that that actually is where the hope is. Um, And your (laughs) report of, you know, uh, Rowan Williams' um, comment about why are you looking at the church for spiritual awakening? Um, That's really beautiful and brilliant. So thank you for that. That's a tremendous gift. Um, any other questions? And then we'll bring it to a close. This might, might be too typically Christian, but I, a verse came to mind. <laughs> in this conversation so it said, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Oh, wow. Oh, I... That's so beautiful. Let me, I can end with a really interesting little parable. Please do. It's a contemporary parable. Um, for about 15 years, my work centered on helping congregations be robust and strong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote hundreds of pages about spiritual practices and congregations and how to be a more vi- vibrant congregation. And I think I was really concerned about what Danielle was just saying, is that somehow I was called to really make sure that the church got it. <laughs> and um, through all that work, a couple years ago, somebody finally told me about a little Methodist church. It's called Swain, United, it's Swain Memorial United Methodist Church. And it's in a place called Tangier Island um, in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. It's in uh, Virginia, right on the Maryland-Virginia border in the middle of the bay. And so this church was founded at the end of the 18th century, uh, almost at the very beginning of Methodism in the United States. And it's still in business. And it's a little tiny island of just a couple thousand people. And the church has nearly everybody in the village. And folks would tell me, this is a great church. They study the Bible. They do spiritual practices. They care for their community. It's, you should write about this church. It's, it's a perfect example of what a vibrant, long-lived, 
amazing church would look like. Faithful to its past, moving into the future with hope and optimism and joy. And so I started paying attention to them. And I asked questions about them and I, you know, spied on them in the internet the way we can do these days. And it is. It's the perfect church. And guess what? The island is sinking. And that's where we live right now. We live in an age where even if you found the perfect church, there's a very real way in which the island is sinking. Mm. And I told that story to a group of Methodists in Arizona a few weeks ago. And um, one of the guys there, was just, he was just really angry about all kinds of stuff, mostly about gay people. I didn't quite get it all. But... Um, he seemed to think that the only people who would be saved would be Christians. And I, I had to remind him that if the island is sinking, that when you're drowning, there's going to be all sorts of people in the water. And that um, Martin Luther King Jr., in the year before he died, pre- preached this great sermon called The World House, in which he talked about how Christians, Jews, Muslims... Hindus, atheists, everybody uh, was going to have to learn to live together in this world house Mm. in a way that was compassionate and just, Mm. or we were all going to die together. And that's kind of where I think we are right Mm. now, is I think that we, we get the island is sinking, and right now we're out there in those waters, and there are the buoyancy is actually present. Mm. And for those of us who are Christians, you know, we're there, but there, there's other buoyant traditions too. It's yeah. just that it's not all in a building anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we're going to learn to swim together. And, and I think that's an, a beautiful thing. I think it is an awakening. I think it's happening right as it should, um, we have work to do, but we can also trust that the Holy Spirit is with us in these waters. And um, I, think that, I think that there is life. Yeah. And to that we can say amen. 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 Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much.